So the big idea for tonight is up there, a couple of ideas. Our perspective of the future, I was conflicted. Is my wife in here? There she is. I wasn't sure if it was supposed to be perspective on the future or of the future. Got any, got any opinions on that one? <laughs> Start, we're starting off with some deep spiritual stuff. Uh, well, I trust that you don't care. All right, it seems that way. Our perspective of the future shapes our values. And as we pursue these values, we are to serve one another with the gifts God has given. Okay? That's the, uh, the idea for tonight. Now, the first sentence is what we'll consider first from our text. You see in verse 7, this amazing statement at the beginning of verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Now that is kind of attention-getting, isn't it? <laughs> my, uh, <clears throat> you know my in-laws were here uh, over the weekend, and on Saturday, uh, my father-in-law and I were watching a football game, and the referee came out and hit his little microphone and was talking to everybody, and he said, this is the end of the third quarter. <laughs> there was like this really long pause, and he just came out and said, this is the end. <laughs> wow, what happened? <laughs> That's really dramatic. That's what it made me think of is here Peter comes out and just says, the end of all things is at hand, or the end of all things is near. It could be translated rightly, the end of all things has come. Well, what is Peter talking about here? Because you could very easily look at this in one sense and say, well, he was way off. That was 2,000 years ago, right? <laughs> What's up with that? So um, what are some, some of your initial thoughts here as you read such a statement? The end of all things is at hand. Do you have other scriptures in mind as you say that, or general thoughts or themes in mind? Okay. <clears throat> well, you could consider in the life of Peter himself, we know that we don't, we don't just hear from Peter in his epistles, First and Second Peter, we also hear from Peter in the Gospels, and where else? Where else do we hear from Peter besides the Gospels? Well, besides First and Second Peter, the book of Acts. And what was Peter's first sermon? Pentecost, okay. You guys seem like you don't have confidence. You can have confidence when you answer, okay. That's all right. And the next person's going to answer really confidently and be wrong. So sorry, whoever the next person is, I'm sorry that that's going to happen to you, okay. <clears throat> but Peter's first sermon was at Pentecost, and he quotes Joel. He says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares. And he goes on and he starts talking about Joel's prophecy about the day of the Lord. So Peter has kind of had this theme in his ministry of focusing on the end of all things is at hand, or the end of all things is near. Um, other thoughts on what, this, what Peter could be talking about? I've got, of course, some ideas here, but just want to see if, what you got going on in your head at the beginning here. Melissa? Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. Maranatha, that's the uh, come quickly, 
is the word Maranatha. So if you ever see that word used in other Christian stuff, that's what it means. We're asking the Lord to come. Rex. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yes. And so we, we have some uh, different ideas that have been brought up here that are, that are good. So the James 5 cross-reference is really good because, um, do, do you have it handy still? Oh, that's okay. It, did you notice what James said? He didn't say the end of all things is near, but he said something else was near or at hand. Did you catch what it was? The coming of the Lord. Good. And it does seem as though that would be what's in Peter's view here, is the coming of the Lord. As Rex just said, it could happen at any time. And the word for that theologically is imminent. The Lord's return is imminent. And that is the next thing on God's calendar, right? Is the return of Christ. And so as we consider this phrase, the end of all things is near, I don't want you to think so much the end of the world. Don't think Armageddon, Bruce Willis, uh, asteroids, you know, that sort of thing, okay? Um, it, it's, it's more of Jesus is returning imminently. That is the next thing that's happening. And beyond that even, that's how we're supposed to live, is with that in view. You see that not just in uh, Peter or even in James, but you see it in the lives of the apostles that they had this mindset of the Lord's coming, and He's coming back at any time. And that does shape the way that we live if we have that in our minds, doesn't it? It's so easy for us to not have that in our minds, isn't it? <laughs> so, so easy for us to pretty much just live like the world. It's in Second Peter, but Peter himself says, you know, there are people that are going to look around and say, hey, it's been so long and the Lord hasn't returned. And uh, you're over here acting like he's coming back at any time. Especially now, they could say, it's been 2,000 years. And do you remember what it says in 2 Peter 3? The Lord is not slow, as, comes, as some count slowness, but He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And don't you know that with the Lord, that a, a thousand years are like a day? And a day is like a thousand years? So uh, we need to have, of course, God's perspective on these things and an understanding that the Lord's return is just as imminent today as it was then, and that should motivate us to live the way it motivated them to live. Rex. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yes, we have multiple reasons to live each day as though it's our last day on earth. Uh, so, yeah, and, and our perspective on our lives must have this concept at the core that the Lord is soon returning. That's got to be at the core of the way that we view life because that uh, has a direct impact on, on our thoughts, our actions, our relationships, our priorities. I mean, you can just do a very basic thought experiment in your head if you were told by a doctor, you have three months to live, what would you do for those three months, right? Now, that, I'm not saying this is a direct parallel, but just you can get the idea of, well, that would change your priorities for those three months. That would change the way you talk to people. You would change your relationships. And in a very 
meaningful sense, we are to live our lives as though the Lord is coming at the end of each day. <laughs> that should shape the way that we live that day, right? And we live our lives with a sense of hope because of that. There's great hope and assurance in that. And we live our lives with a sense of urgency and a sense of confidence. Uh, we live by faith because of that. In Luke 18, when Jesus was uh, teaching the parable of the persistent widow, she was just going to the judge over and over and over again. And do, do you remember what he closed that parable with in verse 18? Because obviously the illustration, I mean, we have to say this every time, the illustration wasn't about how God is like the judge because God is good and the judge was not good. But the illustration was given for us to have the faith like the widow to, persistent, or, uh, to persist in prayer. And then Jesus closed the parable by saying, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? That's how we are to live is by faith because we're looking forward to his return. And so that should shape the way we live. That should cause us to live by faith. And so Peter here is saying, the end of all things is at hand. And you notice it says right after that, therefore. So because of that reality shaping your life, here are some aspects <clears throat> of what you should have going on in your life in response to that reality, okay? And number one, we, we see, I'm going to point out four things. You could chop up this list however you want. But the first one that's listed there, what do you see? Therefore, no, before that, be self-controlled is what it says in the ESV. Therefore, be self-controlled or of sound judgment. Same, uh, rend or that's the rendering in the NASB. What does sound judgment or self-controlled mean? What, what does that look like? How would you define that? Okay, good. So, um, being clear-headed, you could say. Clear-minded, yeah, that's good. Yeah, this uh, word for self-controlled or sound judgment, it's used just two times in the Gospels. And both times, it's in reference to a man after having a demon driven out, the people found him being of sound judgment. So it's a contrast of, you know, before when the demon possessed him, he was out of his mind. That's a frequent descriptor that you get of demon-possessed people. And then afterwards... He's of sound judgment. So it's uh, that influence aspect that Stacy brought up. Yeah. In the ESV, after it says self-controlled, it says sober-minded. I think uh, NASB says sober in spirit. Yeah, the, the word for mind or spirit isn't there. It's uh, just sober is really the idea, to be sober. And at a basic level, we know what that means, right? To not be drunk, not to be under the influence of anything, not to be inebriated, intoxicated, whatever word you want to, whatever word you want to use. But it basically means to perceive the world around you rightly. So these first two things are very closely tied together. To be under control of your own vessel and also to have a mind or a spirit that is sober, that perceives rightly the world around and what's the purpose of having this sobriety in our text? It says, for the purpose of what? No, not prayer. Prayer's plural. 
Well, that's wrong. Because <laughs> it is prayers, plural, for the purpose of prayers, which is kind of, it, it really doesn't make a huge difference, but it is interesting um, that it is plural there, um, different types of prayers or ongoing prayers. There you go, there you go, for the purpose of prayers. And uh, this is the great, uh, one of the great callings on the Christian, is to live a life of faith where the overflow of that is prayers. As you walk through life, self-controlled and being controlled by the Spirit, sober-minded, being influenced in your mind and in your spirit by the Holy Spirit only, the outflow of that would be prayers. Um, which means that Peter here is presenting this to us as he says, okay, consider that the end of all things is at hand, be self-controlled and be sober-minded. And he doesn't say for the sake of arguing with people. He doesn't say for the purpose of devising plans and strategies. Because remember, these are persecuted people. These are displaced, persecuted people. But he points them to prayer. What's the purpose of being self-controlled and sober-minded? Prayer. And you have to consider, I mean, and I think we can really relate to this. When you consider the certainty of Christ's return, which is what he was just referencing, Christ is certainly going to return, and he's certainly going to judge. That's a theme we've had over and over again in 1 Peter. He's not only just returning for fun, but he's returning to judge the living and the dead. He's returning to effectively accomplish the purposes of his kingdom. And during this time, they're living through trials, and they're promised trials. Next week, we're going to start in verse 12. Look at verse 12 where he says, Don't be surprised by the fiery trial. So your promised trials, you're living through trials. Jesus is certainly coming back, and he's certainly going to judge. You can kind of see how this would lead a person to be in the position of, yeah, why would I pray? Because this just is. It just is. I'm promised trials, and I'm living it. I'm told to look forward to Jesus' return, and I'm doing it. And he's going to come back, and he's going to judge. So what's the purpose of prayer? You can really start to uh, lose a sense of perspective with your prayer life living in that kind of existence. But what's the right way to think about that? What's the right way to consider prayer? If Peter here is saying that that's the great purpose of being self-controlled and sober-minded, why pray? Okay, so one reason is that um, that's a way that we stay in true experiential relationship with God. Uh, not only hearing from Him and His Word, but casting our cares on Him. We're going to see that in chapter 5. See in verse uh, 7, chapter 5, verse 7. Cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Yeah. Yeah, God will use prayer as a means of shaping our thinking and correcting us, keeping us... Um, thinking biblically. What else? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Gets us out of a fleshly mindset of just living for our flesh or the world or whatever. Yeah. What else? 
Jim. Yeah, you can't really flippantly say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You have to be pretty well focused when you say that. Good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Does God use prayer as a means of affecting change in the world? Yeah. yeah. Um, who did Jesus tell us to pray for? Uh, some people specifically. Pray for your enemies. Wow. Think that's relevant when you're being persecuted, especially? And what are you praying for, for your enemies? <laughs> you could pray imprecatory prayers like David, yeah. May they fall in their own nets. <laughs> yeah. Praying for their salvation. Praying for opportunities that God would open a door. You see that in Colossians chapter 4, that sort of idea. Um, yeah, so we're, we're not just praying, even though it's a, a true reality of prayer that God does a work on us, we're also praying to, hopefully, by God's sovereign hand, affect change in the world in that we'd see more people get saved, in that we would pray for our brothers and sisters, that they would be sustained, particularly through various trials, fiery trials we're going to read about, that their faith would grow, that we would be used of God to help them grow. There are all kinds of things we can pray for in the realm of Asking God to accomplish things in the world, not just in our own mind. So, uh, yeah, so, so important. And this self-controlled aspect or the sobriety aspect really affects our prayer life when we're perceiving rightly the world around us through spiritual lenses, not just through, uh, you know, our, our flesh or whatever, seeing it as the world sees it, like, oh, it really stinks that you're going through a really hard time. But when we're seeking to perceive spiritually about the Lord's up to something. The Lord's doing something in our lives. The Lord's teaching us. The Lord is drawing people to himself, and we're seeing these things. That's when you're self-controlled and sober-minded, you're seeing the world that way. And that affects the way you pray. Because you're understanding that God is at work here. And so we want to be self-controlled, sober-minded people for the sake, it says, of our prayers. Okay? And then two more things. What's the next thing in verse 8? Yeah. I'm going to say fervent brotherly love because who's the one another? Right. When we see that phrase one another, we're talking about in the family of God, Christian to Christian. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So, See if you can remember, that's where that verse is. I know you guys know that verse, love covers a multitude of sins. It's 1 Peter 4, okay? Uh, remember that that's where that is. It's maintaining warmth in the church, warm love, brotherly love. And the, the phrase, the love covering a multitude, multitude of sins is really interesting because it can sound like, especially if you just hear it in a vacuum, that means neglect justice. We'll just... Forget about it because love covers a multitude of sins. It's not teaching that, is it? No, no, it's not. Okay. So what's the idea? Love covers a multitude of sins. Because this is talking about human-to-human -human relationships. Love one another. 
Okay. Good. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a call to love as Jesus loved. And there are a couple other places where we can see this idea. Keep your finger here, but turn all the way back to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 10. It's quite possible that Peter was quoting this verse to some extent. He didn't quote it word for word, but perhaps <clears throat> this verse inspired a phrase that was common among the people of that time, but Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Someone want to read that for us? Okay, so you see that idea there in the second part of the verse, and it's contrasted with what hatred's doing. So hatred is, is fueling into strife. You could say hatred gives birth to more hatred. But what does love do? It covers. It covers all offenses or transgressions. And then turn forward into the New Testament to 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to be covering this on Sunday morning pretty soon. The love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. And would someone read verses 4 and 5 of 1 Corinthians 13? 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 5. <laughs> Go ahead, Jen. Yeah. Okay, so you could see all these descriptors here of love and how in different ways that describes what it means to cover a multitude of sins. I hope. I hope you could see that. Um, it's patient. Patient people help cover a multitude of sins in that they're, they're very grace-giving. You've got to be gracious to be patient. <laughs> if you don't have grace, you're not going to be very patient. All right? Um, yes? <clears throat> oh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're being pushed to, you know, again, going back to Stacy's comment, to be Christ-like, right? Um, when Jesus was around sin, and even when he was directly sinned against, he didn't, um, if you look at verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 13, he didn't insist on his own way. He wasn't irritable. He wasn't resentful, right? He was... Very patient, grace-giving, merciful, um, just returning hatred with love. Um, let's see, I've got the ESV in front of me, which I don't typically have. Let me look at my note real quick. Um, let's see, note number four, sorry. Yeah, then verse five, someone want to read that from the NASB, verse five, 1 Corinthians 13, five? Okay, there we go. doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. I like that phrasing. Yeah, ESV is quite a bit different. I'll, have, I'll look forward to studying that when we get to it in the sermon series, but it um, doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. And that's, 
a good way of describing what it means that love covers a multitude of sins, not taking into account a wrong suffered. Yeah, right, not keeping a record. Very good. So if we were to think about what does the opposite of fervent love, what does the opposite of sin-covering love look like, what are some things we could say? If you're not showing the love that covers a multitude of sins, what are you doing instead? Bitter. Mm -hmm. Good. Keeping track of all those wrongs suffered, (laughs) right? Yeah, yeah, right. And so Peter here is saying, don't be that way but be loving, be loving. Um, one more passage I want to show you outside of First Peter, First, or, uh, Matthew 24, Matthew chapter 24. I thought this was an interesting connection. Jesus talking about the way of the world, particularly as it comes to a close. Again, thinking of Peter's comment, the end of all things is at hand. Let's look at Matthew 24, verses 9 to 14. Someone want to read those? Matthew 24, 9 to 14. All right. So there are different ways that this passage is viewed. Some people think that this hasn't happened yet, but it's yet future. Some people think that this is like an ongoing state of the world. Some people think that this happened in the first century and it's not happening. Uh, Like this particular prophecy is not happening now. But no matter what view you take of when this, this actual prophecy took place, I think we can all agree that the same types of things happen in all generations, right? And uh, particularly among Peter's audience, they were dealing with being delivered up to tribulation. They were dealing with being hated by all nations for the name of Christ. They were likely, verse 10, seeing many fall away and betray one another and hate one another, because that's what happens when persecution comes. They were likely seeing false prophets arise and lead people astray. And then verse 12, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So Peter is here saying, keep that love warm. Keep fervent love for one another. Because when persecution comes, This is the type of thing that happens, is that people's love grows cold. And he says, keep fervent in your love for one another. Keep covering those offenses in the sense that you're being patient, gracious, merciful toward one another, not keeping track of all those wrongs that people are doing to you, not being bitter, not being spiteful, but being a loving people, not just to the world, but remember the context of our uh, verse 8 there in 1 Peter 4 is one another toward one another, particularly in the church. Keep that love warm. Keep the fire burning. Melissa. Yep. Well, yeah, you can't separate the two, right? Show me a guy who says he loves Christ but doesn't love the church, and I'll show you a guy who doesn't love Christ. They're just tied together. So, absolutely. And then the fourth thing, verse 9. What do we see in verse 9? Hospitality. Where we get our word hospital. Don't usually put those two words together, but there they are. It's an interesting word. 
the word is a, it's a compound word. It mean, it's the word for brotherly love, which is uh, where we get the city name Philadelphia. Phileo is brotherly love. And it's combined with the word for strangers. It means, the word for hospitality literally means show brotherly love to people who aren't your brothers. <laughs> kind of a cool word. And so Peter here is saying, show hospitality, but again, who, who's he talking about in verse 9? To one another. There's our one another phrase again in the context of the church. And so we're taking this idea of hospitality, which is typically about showing love to strangers, and he's saying show hospitality toward one another. Hospitality should be seen in the church among each other as well as to those outside the church. And when you think about the uh, particular context, again, of this letter, you can see how this would be really important because we'll do a little math uh, formula here. Take persecution that's making people move and leave their home and add to that no chain hotels right? Or restaurants. And now you've got Christians. Where, where, where are they going? What are they doing? They're wandering all over. They don't have a home. And surely in Asia Minor, they were coming across Christians all the time who had no place to go. And so Peter's here saying, no, mikasa sukasa. That's the attitude, right? Open up your home to these fellow believers who are enduring persecution. And he says, without complaint, he adds that part, or without, without grumbling. Open up your home and care for them, but don't grumble about it. Apparently, there's a church group text that just went out. <laughs> who's, who's texting everybody in the middle of Bible study? <laughs> um, so it's, a, <clears throat> it's the idea of showing hospitality to fellow Christians in the midst of persecution without... What is that? Oh, yeah, well, I believe that, yeah. Um, why do you think he added without grumbling? What, what, what are the opportunities that would spur on grumbling in that situation, do you think? Because there's a reason he added that, right? He didn't have to put without complaining. Yeah, hospitality rarely presents itself on our schedule, right? <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. very good. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. They got 10 kids, you got no kids. Yep. What were you saying, Char? Oh, yeah, that's right. We agreed on three days. Why are you still here? It's been three weeks. Or, wow, they sure do eat a lot. <laughs> that's, that's unbelievable how much those kids pack away. Uh, I guess we'll keep, we'll keep buying groceries. Yeah, there are lots of opportunities for grumbling when it comes to hospitality, right? Like, oh, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll throw away your trash. I guess I'll clean your dishes. I guess I'll put the toilet seat back down. Yeah, all kinds of opportunities. And Peter says, look, if you're going to be showing hospitality, let's, let's go all the way, do it the right way. No grumbling, no complaining, okay? So, um, 
Our perspective of the, of the future shapes our values, and here are four values we, we can pursue. To be self-controlled, to be sober-minded, to have fervent brotherly love, and to show hospitality. Okay? And <clears throat> while we're doing that, while we're pursuing these values, Peter's now going to show us how we are to serve one another with these gifts that God gives us. He's going to bring in the idea of spiritual gifts. You see that in verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's manifold or varied grace. Each one of us has received at least one spiritual gift from God. And why did God give us spiritual gifts? We've been talking about this quite a bit in the 1 Corinthians series. Why did He give us gifts? Build up the church. Why does the church need to be built up? Okay, in what sense? Okay, so there is the idea of kingdom expansion, right? Uh, Jesus gave parables about this, and he's building his church, every tribe, tongue, and nation. Okay, so evangelism in the world is an aspect of that. What, in what other way does the church grow besides numerically? Holiness or spiritual maturity or... Um, Knowledge, all of those things. We see those in the New Testament, those kinds of phrases in the New Testament. And why is that important? He has, God has designed this thing we're living in to bring glory to Himself. That's what God's doing. He's bringing glory to Himself. And here you are, placed in the church by being baptized by the Spirit, and you're called to bring glory to God through this way he's designed, which is being a member of the body, exercising faith, exercising your spiritual gifts, and growing up in the faith together. That glorifies God. And we uh, are identified here in verse 10 as stewards of his grace. He's given you a gift as, you see that at the end, good stewards of God's grace, his manifold grace. So how do we steward the grace of God while we serve one another with our gifts. We don't uh, do this by serving ourselves. We don't do this by serving the world primarily. We do this by serving one another in the church. The overarching purpose for these gifts is participation in the body for growing in godliness. When you think of the purpose of spiritual gifts, here's the big idea. Growing in godliness participating in the body. These are means of glorifying God. And he gives us two broad categories of spiritual gifts in verse 11. What are they? They're on the board. <laughs> Speaking and serving. Okay, good. Yeah, you see that in verse 11? He, he doesn't list all the spiritual gifts like Paul does. Paul goes on these long lists. Peter just says, look, if you speak, do it this way. If you serve, do it this way. Two big categories. All right, so when you think of speaking, what kind of spiritual gifts that we see listed in other places in Scripture, what type of spiritual gifts fit into the speaking category? Teaching, okay, good. Evangelism, very good. Mm-hmm, yep. It's like, so prophesying, uh, which, you know, we could say prophesying would be in the sense of prophets who hold the office in the church, a prophet who foretell, or those who 
preach based on what has been written. We looked at some interesting ones when Tyler preached a week and a half ago. Words of knowledge and words of wisdom. Those are interesting ones, aren't they, to think about? But those are speaking gifts. Tongues and interpretation of tongues. Those are speaking gifts. Exhortation, that's another spiritual gift that's listed. You mostly exhort by speaking. And so Peter says, look, if you're going to speak, this is how you're supposed to do it. What does he say in verse 11? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. The utterances. Utterances. I I like that word. Just a fun word. As speaking God's utterances. So if you are using a speaking gift, this is how you are to do it. The ESV says, has one who speaks the oracles of God. And uh, this is an admonition that has implications. He's talking about this is the way it should be. And so let me give you uh, three ways that you speak as one speaking God's utterances. The first one is limitation. The second is authority. And the uh, third is in view of judgment. Okay, let me explain what I mean by each of those. So with limitation, if you're speaking as one who is speaking the oracles of God or the utterances of God, that means you're not considering your own thoughts or opinions as the basis for what you're speaking. You're limited to what God has said. So in this time, when the miraculous sign gifts were still active in the church, if someone was prophesying, someone had new revelation from God and they were prophesying, they were to speak as though they were speaking the very utterances of God, right? Because that's what they received, was literally God's word given to them that they were to speak. So that's prophecy and for tongues and and other things. But today, when we talk about a speaking gift, and speaking as though you're speaking God's utterances, you base what you say off the Word of God. And recognizing that God has spoken in His Word, that this does contain the message from God, we speak forth, we teach forth what is in there, and we do it with the confidence of we're speaking the utterances of God, the very oracles of God, the very words of God, because This is the Word of God. So we're limited to that. We're limited to what God says. You're not given a a gift that has to do with speaking so that you can just go out and just whatever you think, whatever pops into your head, just go for it and speak as though it's God's utterances. You want to have everything that you say based on the Word of God when you're advising someone, when you're counseling someone, when you're teaching someone. It comes from the Word of God. And so we're limited to the Word of God in that sense. Secondly, authority. Well, when we recognize that when the Word is handled rightly, when, when we are teaching from the Word of God and speaking from the Word of God, that teaching has authority insofar as it is based on the Word of God, right? The Word of God has authority over our lives. 
And so when someone is relaying the message of the authoritative Word of God, we recognize that that teaching, insofar as it's based on the Word of God, is authoritative because it's the Word that has authority. No man's opinion has authority, no man's interpretation has authority, but the Word of God has authority. And so we can have confidence as though we're teaching the very utterances of God because it's the authoritative Word of God. And then thirdly, in view of judgment, uh, this is particularly the case for those who are teachers, but we have to consider how critically important our words are. Jesus talked about this, that we'll be judged for the words we speak. James 3, verse 1, let not many of you become teachers. Teachers will incur a stricter judgment, is what it says. Now, we don't know what that looks like. We don't know all what that means, and it's not like that's like supposed to scare the dickens out of us or anything. But that should, at, the, at a minimum, put into the mouth of someone speaking reverence, seriousness, focus, wanting to be careful. Okay? Someone shouldn't be careless with a speaking gift. But when someone goes forth to build up the body by speaking in whatever way that is, that person needs to be uh, considerate of what the Word of God says about the judgment of our words. And so we need to be limited to the Word of God. We need to teach the Word of God with authority because it has authority, and we need to have judgment in view, meaning that we are being reverent with our handling of the Word of God and we're taking it seriously. That makes sense? Thoughts or questions on those things before we talk about service gifts? Yeah, the second category is serving. What are some gifts that you can think of listed in the New Testament that have to do with serving? Not speaking now, but serving. Throw them out there. Helps. Yeah, the gift of helps. Good. The gift of service. <laughs> there is a gift that's just labeled service. Yeah, yeah serving is pretty generic, but there's some other gifts. Can you list them off? Giving, very good, good. Mercy, good one. Healing, it, you know, it's a miraculous sign gift, uh, but healing was a service ministry, right? Um, what are some others I got listed? Oh, administration, uh, leading. I put leading in there as a service gift as well. So, welcome. So, uh, yeah, there are several gifts of, that fit into the serving category that we find in the New Testament. And what do we see as the uh, modifier? Like we, we said, speaking as one speaking the utterances of God. What do we see with serving? What does he say? Good. Yeah, I'll start it differently. By... God's strength. And this is as opposed to what? Yeah, very good. As opposed to our own strength. God is the one who energizes His servants. As we use our gifts in the church, God is the one empowering us, isn't He? Energizing us. And we see this in a variety of places in the New Testament. Turn back with me to 1 Corinthians. Keep your finger here and we'll hit a few verses on our way back to 1 Peter. 
But 1 Corinthians chapter 12, let's look at verse 6. We just looked at this verse recently on Sunday morning. 1 Corinthians 12, 6. Someone want to read that? Okay, the same God who works or empowers all things and all persons. Okay, look at verse 11, same chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11. You want to read that one too, Joseph? Okay, he works all these things. Now, this is uh, the word where we get the word energy. He energizes all these things. The same spirit. Okay, turn forward to the book of Philippians. Turn forward a couple books. We're working our way back to 1 Peter. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. Let's do 12 and 13. Someone want to read Philippians 2, 12 and 13? Who's got it? Okay, work out your own salvation, verse 13, for it is God who energizes you, who works in you, who empowers you. He's willing and working for His good pleasure. Okay, Colossians, next book over, just one or two pages over, the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. Someone want to read those two? 1, 28 and 29. All right, the ESV says all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Yeah, same idea. He has this power, this energy that he's working within us. Okay, and then 1 Thessalonians, next book over. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, I'll read it. Paul writes, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. The word of God is also at work in us. Okay, so you can flip back to First Peter. We see all these passages that talk about God's working in us. And so when we see First Peter 4, verse 11, that those who are serving are to do so by the strength that God supplies, hopefully you have a fuller picture now of what that means, that God is in us, working in us, powerfully in us, and He does supply us great strength. And what's the goal of serving? What's the goal of speaking? In order that. See at the end of verse 11? Anytime you see in order that, it has to do with purpose. And what's the purpose here? In order that what? That God will be glorified. And not just that He'll be glorified in a general sense, but how is He glorified? Through Jesus. Is there any other way to glorify God? 
whole church. <laughs> can you glorify God rightly? Can you honor God rightly outside of Jesus Christ? Okay. All right. Now, we, we know that in all things, God gets the glory. He works all things for, according to His will for His own glory. But as far as living for God, is there a way to glorify Him in your life except through Jesus Christ? No, there's not. And it says, to Him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. So God's grace is manifold. We saw that back at the beginning in verse 7, I think. No, verse 8. No. Where do we see that? In manifold... Okay, it's at the end of verse 10. <laughs> I was way off. At the end of verse 10, we are good stewards of God's manifold grace or God's varied grace, it says in the ESV. And so God's grace is manifold, and so are the gifts that he gives. He doesn't give us all the same gift, right? We've talked about that over and over again. You know that. And the more and more I study spiritual gifts, the more and more I think that the lists that we have in the New Testament aren't comprehensive, that there's just a lot of gifts that he gives, <laughs> right? And they just look differently. Uh, I don't know. There's just different ways that they could, they, they could look. And just as God's grace looks differently in our lives, it's the same grace and we still experience the same grace and it still causes us to praise God. But we experience it in so many different ways. Even in just your life, think through all the different ways you've experienced God's grace. His gifts, I think, are doled out in a such a varied way. But the big idea is that we are stewards of these gifts. And whether we're speaking, whether we're serving, whatever we're doing, the, the idea is, to what end are you doing it? Well, it should be that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Why are you doing what you do? Hopefully, it's that God will be glorified, right? It's all about bringing attention to God amid the great challenges of life. All the ups and downs, all the trials we're going through, persecution, whatever may come, it's about glorifying God through Jesus Christ and bringing attention to Him, magnifying His name. Okay? Thoughts or questions on that, that section? We've got about seven minutes. Uh, we can kick around some thoughts. We could even branch out of 1 Peter if we wanted. We could do whatever. Sorry it's a little toasty in here this evening. No. It's too warm, right, Jim? All right, yeah. <laughs> Figured you'd be on my side on that one. Yeah, um, well, no, I mean, there is, I mean, the way James presents it in James 3.1, there is a clear distinction between those who are labeled as teachers and get that stricter judgment and those who are not teachers and consequently don't get that stricter judgment. That's the way he presents it. So um, I think that distinction is important. However, we do have Jesus saying every idle word will be accounted for, and that's a blanket statement. So we all need to be equally careful about the words that we use. However, those who are teachers in the church have an additional burden. And you see that in Hebrews 13 also, um, 
Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who have to give an account for how they've handled your souls. I mean, that's, yeah. Right. And so it's when, when you're in the office of pastor-teacher, there's this added responsibility of the way you've led people and influenced them in that way. Whereas if you're not in that office, <clears throat> you're, not, you're not looked to to lead people that way. Therefore, that judgment doesn't come with it. So I'd say that's the, that's the difference. Good stuff, huh? <laughs> yeah. 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 And that's basically what Paul said. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Yeah. 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 Those videos are really well done, though, aren't they? They're good. They're good. Did you guys see the email I sent out this morning about Afghanistan rescuing the believers out of there? Um, Check that out if you haven't seen it. Um, Yeah, we have lots of brothers and sisters who are living real persecution. So a book like 1 Peter hits in a different way when you're living through it. That's for sure. Okay, anything else? Melissa? Oh, okay. It's not as exciting for me, but sure. Yeah. On the chair. Yeah. So what's that you have? Oh, okay. Gotcha. Sweet. Okay. You guys have any questions about 1 Corinthians? Going through that on Sunday mornings. I know we don't always have the opportunity to maybe ask questions about that stuff. But seemed good? Okay. All right. Making my job too easy. Well, I do, I really, really enjoy answering questions. That's one of, one of my joys. Yes, Joseph? Yeah. Yeah, and let's, <clears throat> yeah, if, I mean, let's be, um, you know, real here. Uh, these two ideas, speaking and serving, because that's really what Peter's bringing up is two big ideas. But they're not, never really separated, right. right? Because everybody who's serving is speaking in some capacity. Now, I mean, I think going back to what Stacy asked is important, recognizing the difference between pastor, teacher, and the church. But, but you're still talking to people and interacting, right? Unless you're a total weirdo. Um, and people who are speaking are also serving, right? It's a, there's the, the same idea going on uh, in both. So it's not like he's saying... You're either speaking or serving, and that's it. But obviously, there are gifts where you'll, there's more emphasis on one or the other. Dean? And going back to the 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and what we um, what we see in First Corinthians, we're going to see it in chapter fourteen, is it does seem as though during that time there was an extraordinary outpouring of particularly some of the speaking gifts, prophecy and tongues being the two main ones, and so you have a lot. You had a lot of people in the same congregation with those speaking gifts, and Paul's saying even then. Let two or three prophets speak one at a time. Let two or three people speak in tongues one at a time. And there must be an interpreter. So even if there was a particularly speaking-heavy type church scenario or get-together scenario, there's order that has to be uh, put on that service where you don't all just get together and say, hey, let's all just do whatever we want free for all. We're going to set up seven open mics and go at the same time. You know, There are some churches that do that. Uh, if you go to the Appalachian Mountains and... Bring your own snake, uh, BYOS. Uh, they they do some crazy stuff in those churches. So, yeah. So, and like, I wonder if he was meaning like general serving, like both in the church or out of the church, or if he was saying it for certain. So I think, he, well, in in this view, in the context of First Corinthians or First Peter four, is in. Uh, you see in verse 10 again, it says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. There's our one another phrase again. And so that doesn't mean the, the ways that God has equipped you spiritually, the world will never feel the effects of that. Your neighbors still should feel the effect of that in some capacity. But the priority with that gift is building up the church. Yeah. Okay. Now we're at 815 exactly. Perfect. Now we can close. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Clocking out. <sighs> All right, let's pray. Lord, we do again thank you again for your word. We thank you for the amazing truths that we discover in it each time we open it. We ask that you would bless what we've learned in this study tonight uh, to our lives by causing us to make connections in how we are to apply these teachings, that it would affect the way that we interact in the church that we would be self-controlled and sober-minded with fervent love, showing hospitality to one another. Give us that vision for our lives as we look forward to your return, which truly is imminent. You could come back before we even get home tonight. And Lord, we look forward to that day, and we pray along with your apostles, come quickly. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.